Who is behind the militant group known as ISIS, and how have they come to threaten existing Iraqi authorities? Does the rise of this Al-Qaeda offshoot suggest the 11-year-old U.S. intervention there was a failure or a success? How does the U.S.-NATO coalition stand to gain from these developments, and what lies ahead for this beleaguered Middle East state? And what of the Syrian elections? Is there any indication they were fraudulent, as Secretary of State John Kerry has suggested? What does the re-election of Bashar al-Assad mean for U.S. imperial aims for the region? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will hear perspectives from Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization and from Mahdi Nazamroya, who was in Syria recently to observe the elections. On this week's program, Iraq and Syria in the Crosshairs, conversations with Michel Chosodovsky and Mahdi Nazamroya. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 20th, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, is developing brain chips that will implant or remove specific memories from a subject, a prospect some may deem chilling given DARPA's previous advocacy of authentication microchips. Neuroscientists foresee a brave new world where minds can be programmed using lasers, drugs, and microchips in order to create false memories, a technology that has already been used on mice. Scientists are heralding the beginning of a golden age where minds could be manipulated to function better, although Ledoux acknowledges that ethical implications include the possibility that the application of the technology could lead to the creation of quote-unquote fearless monsters. DARPA's push for brain chips that could erase or implant memories takes on a somewhat sinister tone given the organization's prior advocacy of edible authentication microchips and electronic tattoos that can read a person's mind. Former DARPA director and now Google executive Regina Dugan told an audience at the All Things D11 conference last year that the tech giant was working on a microchip inside a pill that users would swallow daily in order to turn their entire body into a broadcast signal for identification purposes. That comes from the article, DARPA Brain Chips to Implant False Memories, Technology Has the Potential to Create Fearless Monsters, by Paul Joseph Watson, posted June 18th, originally appearing at InfoWars.
Members of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIS, were trained in 2012 by U.S. instructors working at a secret base in Jordan, according to informed Jordanian officials. The officials said dozens of ISIS members were trained at the time as part of covert aid to the insurgents targeting the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Syria. In February 2012, WND was first to report the U.S., Turkey, and Jordan were running a training base for the Syrian rebels in the Jordanian town of Safawi in the country's northern desert region. Last March, the German weekly Der Spiegel reported Americans were training Syrian rebels in Jordan. Britain's Guardian newspaper also reported last March that U.S. trainers were aiding Syrian rebels in Jordan, along with British and French instructors. That comes from the article, U.S. Trained ISIS at Secret Jordan Base, posted June 18th, originally appearing at WND. As early as 2007... Sources within the Pentagon and across the U.S. intelligence community revealed a conspiracy to drown the Middle East in sectarian war and to do so by arming and funding extremist groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda itself. The vast scale of U.S., NATO, and Arab aid to terrorists fighting in Syria leaves no doubt that the conspiracy described by Hirsch in 2007 was carried out in earnest, and that the reason al-Qaeda groups such as al-Nusra and ISIS displaced so-called moderates was because such moderates never existed in any significant manner to begin with. The plan from the beginning was to raise an extremist expeditionary force to trigger a regional sectarian bloodbath, a bloodbath now raging across multiple borders and set to expand further if decisive action is not taken. Despite an open conspiracy to drown the region in sectarian strife, the U.S. now poses as a stakeholder in Iraq's stability. Having armed, funded, and assisted ISIS into existence and into northern Iraq itself, the idea of America intervening to stop ISIS is comparable to an arsonist extinguishing his fire with more gasoline. That's from the article, ISIS Made in USA, Iraq Geopolitical Arsonists Seek to Burn Region, by Tony Cartolucci, posted June 18th, originally appearing at New Eastern Outlook. Since last autumn, the U.S. government has been lying through its teeth about Ukraine, blaming Russia for the consequences of Washington's actions and demonizing Putin exactly as Washington demonized Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Assad, the Taliban, and Iran. Russia has witnessed Washington change the role of nuclear weapons in its war doctrine from deterrent to preemptive first strike. And now Russia listens to a daily stream of lies from the West and witnesses the slaughter by Washington's vassal in Kiev, of civilians in Russian Ukraine branded terrorists by Washington by such weapons as white phosphorus with not a peep of protest from the West. If the White House fool, Washington's media whores, and European vassals 
convince Russia that war is in the cards, war will be in the cards, as there is no prospect whatsoever of NATO being able to mount a conventional offensive threat against Russia anywhere near the size and power of the German invasion force in 1941 that met with destruction, the war will be nuclear, which will mean the end of all of us. That's from the article, The Lethality of Nuclear War, Washington is Beating the War Drums, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted June 18th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. Iraq is back in the headlines 11 years after U.S. President George W. Bush led a coalition of the willing into that country to supposedly rescue the free world from Saddam Hussein's notorious weapons of mass destruction. Now, security in the region is being threatened by the aftermath of the U.S. operation, and a debate is being raised about deploying a robust troop presence in the country in the wake of the extremist Islamic group known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Where did this group come from, and how does this complicate or enable U.S.-NATO imperial aims for the region? To answer these questions, I spoke recently with Michel Chosodovsky, Director of the Center for Research on Globalization and Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa. Let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, developments that have been uh, happening over the last little while in Iraq. Uh, I can assume that uh, what we're seeing in terms of the, the factionalized fighting, that this is not uh, uh, a question of uh, the U.S. and NATO sort of fumbling the ball and uh, that this is a part of their actual plan? Well, the Western media, uh, with a few exceptions, have described this unfolding conflict in, in Iraq as a civil war opposing the, the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham, which is often referred to the Islamic State of Iraq and, and Syria, um, and uh, the al-Maliki government, they're describing it as a civil war. It's not a civil war. And, the, and for that, we have to understand, first of all, what is this Islamic State of Iraq and, and the Levant, or Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It, it is a terrorist entity originally associated to al-Qaeda. It was formed in uh, going back to 2003. It is part of a U.S. intelligence op to create, fund, uh, and equip these terrorist organizations. Um, and up until last year, uh, this was essentially an Iraq-based uh, terrorist entity involved in various uh, uh, operations, uh, including uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the bomb explosions, the attacks, the, the, and so on, uh, which were waged uh, within Iraq. And now this, uh, this terrorist entity is, um, is involved 
or has been involved in Syria for, for the last year. And uh, it is not by any means an independent entity. And that's what is important in, in, in understanding this conflict. Uh, the United States pulls the strings within the ranks of these terror brigades. They are Western military um, uh, advisors, uh, special forces. Often uh, these are special forces uh, of private security companies, but they are in liaison with U.S. Uh, NATO command structures, and they do not, the, the, these brigades uh, may have a semblance of, of independence, but ultimately they're serving, um, they're serving a geopolitical agenda. And uh, the situation which is evolving now in Iraq is that you have a confrontation between the forces of the Maliki government on the one hand and the terrorist entity, and both sides are supported and financed by the United States of America. And now what is emerging uh, is uh, ultimately a situation where the United States is no longer portrayed as the aggressor nation. Uh, it is potentially uh, presented as the mediator in a civil conflict between Sunni and Shiite. But when we look at the broader context, uh, we, come to the, we come to a different understanding, namely that, that the United States is supporting both sides and the objective is to trigger sectarian warfare within Iraq uh, and ultimately uh, leading to the destruction of Iraq as a nation-state um, and the fracture, the political fracturing of, of Iraq along, uh, along um, ethnic, uh, ethnic and religious lines, leading possibly to the formation of, of three separate entities uh, a Sunni caliphate on the one hand, um, and a Shia republic, which would be the, which would would be made up of of whatever is salvaged from the Baghdad government, and then the Kurdistan republic, which is already de facto in in the northern region. It's an independent state. So that what I think is is unfolding is the transformation of a country into an open territory, uh, fractured, it's an engineered process, um, and it is there to serve uh, both uh, strategic as well as, as economic interests by the uh, aggressor nation. Uh, Professor Chosodovsky, I, I believe, like going back to 2002, 2003, the uh, the U.S. Uh, coalition um, military intervention in Iraq was portrayed uh, pretty perhaps simplistically as just an effort to to take control of the oil and, and of that valuable uh, territory. Are we seeing with, with the, the are, are we seeing an evolution from a sort of a direct takeover and then putting in a, a compliant government? Or, or are we just seeing um, just an evolution, that something that's been like organized from the beginning? Or are we is, have we seen like 
adjustments made over the last 10 years, uh, like switching to a kind of plan B with the civil war uh, efforts that you're describing? Well, it, it's difficult really to, to answer that question because there's been many shifts in U.S. foreign policy from one administration to the next. And, and the, the, the present administration is not quite in the same perspective as the, as the neocons under the Bush administration. But what I think we can say is that the formation of a Sunni caliphate has been on the drawing board of, of U.S. foreign policymakers for quite some time, it, and it's part of a military agenda. So that the proposed redivision of both Iraq and Syria is, is, uh, is what we're dealing with, uh, namely uh, that um, the United States wants to get rid of Iraq as a, uh, as a unified state, uh, and that, I think, was part of the agenda right from the beginning, and create these three territories. And in turn, uh, they're looking at the broader picture, because if, uh, if uh, Iran gets involved in this conflict, and, and the United States is in the process of sucking Iran into the conflict, under the pretext that Iran can collaborate in the, in the war on terrorism, in other words, they can, well, they already have a military cooperation agreement with the al-Maliki government. They have special forces in, uh, in Iraq. But this um, invitation by Washington to say that Iran can help us going after the terrorists, first of all, is an absurd proposition. But secondly, uh, it, from Iran's point of view, it, it signifies that Iran would be implicated in the civil war, and eventually that civil war could lead to a regional war, because you have, you have Kurds in, uh, in Syria and Iran, and uh, the, the project of Greater Kurdistan would, uh, and, uh, and of course Turkey, would, would, uh, would suck these countries into a broader regional war, um, and um, I, I suspect that that is ultimately the, the scenario of bringing Iran into the, uh, into the Iraq civil war, which is spearheaded by the United States, and then eventually this would lead uh, to a broader conflict um, and, uh, and to changes in territorial divisions between different countries in the region, including Syria as well, Syria, Iraq, Iran and possibly even Pakistan, because Pakistan is a breakaway Baluchistan uh, um, state, which uh, uh, the separatist movement is supported covertly by British intelligence. And, uh, uh, and, and then there's a Baluchistan minority, of course, in Iran. So that the objective is ultimately to weaken uh, the broader Middle East, Central Asian region, carve it up into uh, proxy states, and, uh, and then open up these territories to foreign investment rather than have a cumbersome uh, uh, central government in Baghdad. Uh, it's, um, it's a process of destruction of, of the nation state, of impoverishment, um, and uh, this has been ongoing in, in Iraq right from the Gulf War, as, as we recall. But now, 
to get to to this uh, involvement of Iran um, in um, in Iraq civil war uh, by saying that Iran can contribute to going after the terrorists, the ISIS terrorists. Mm. It it's a somewhat absurd proposition because. First of all, the Iranians know that ISIS is supported by the United States. And I, I assume that people in the White House and the State Department also know that. So it really, but, um, but on the other hand, um, and I should mention this, that today in the Canadian, not today, uh, a couple of days back, in fact, on the same day that John Kerry it, uh, intimated that, uh, I think it was last Friday, intimated that um, Iran could help, and they, 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 they said, of course, Iran can help, but we're not going to enter into any collaboration with them. But there was still a rapprochement between U.S. officials and, and, uh, and Iranian officials. On that same day, the National Post in Toronto published an article saying that Ottawa was threatened by a terrorist attack by Iran. Um, and that particular article said, we have evidence, blah, 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 that, that Iran, in view of the deterioration of relations between Ottawa and Tehran, is preparing to attack uh, the nation's capital. And uh, the RCMP, the Ontario Police, the Quebec, Sûreté du Québec, uh, and of course, um, Canadian intelligence, CSIS, all, everybody is is, um, is prepared for a possible attack by Iran. And then they say, in the same report, they, they refer to an al-Qaeda threat, uh, which is an absurd proposition because al-Qaeda is a Sunni uh, terrorist organization and Iran, uh, Iran do not support al-Qaeda. And then, coincidentally, the United States invites Iran to... Um, to um, collaborate in going after Al-Qaeda, namely ISIS, which is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. So you're, you, you're in, a, in, a, in a situation where uh, of, of mass uh, uh, media disinformation, but I would suspect that if Iran gets involved in this conflict, there will also be at one point a process of, of demonization against Iran, um, and Iran may be be caught up also in in uh, in acts criminal acts against the Sunni population, uh, so that in effect, I think what the United States is seeking from a U.S. policy foreign policy perspective is to create conditions for a broader conflict, uh, which could engulf uh, Syria and Iran and and of course Lebanon. But I should mention that there's, there's another dimension to this, is that when uh, ISIS was created, or let's say the new acronym for ISI, um, um, Islamic State in, in Iraq, well, last, it was last April 2013, they, they changed the acronym and they called it ISIS or ISIL, meaning that, that this particular uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated organization would extend its activities into Syria. So that by... Uh, but that was a U.S. In, uh, initiative. It's a covert uh, undertaking on the, on the part of the United States with uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar funding these uh, terrorist organizations. 
but in effect in extending the mandate of ISI to Syria, uh, U.S. foreign policymakers now consider uh, this as, uh, as, as a new space, so to speak. And it, it has a lot to do with the fact that that, uh, the, that the insurgency in Syria has been defeated, and um, one avenue uh, for this extended uh, in, for this uh, extended foreign policy agenda is to integrate Syria with Iraq uh, and support covertly terrorist organizations on both sides of the border. And I think that's what they're doing. Now, another important event occurred, and that was a few days before the, the Syrian elections. Uh, Turkey cut off the water supply to the Euphrates, um, and that had immediate impacts on, uh, on both Syria and Iraq. Um, uh, it's not to say that this is the first time, and Iraq has been uh, persistently affected by, uh, by uh, water shortages. And at the same time, the ISIS was involved in a terrorist attack on uh, water facilities, which, uh, uh, which uh, were instrumental in the supply of water to the Syrian population. And that was, that, again, that was, was um, barely a few days before the, uh, before the Syrian elections on, on June 3rd. Uh, so that we're, we're, in a, we're in a context whereby the country, Iraq, an entire country, is being destroyed, uh, where civil conflicts are being triggered deliberately. It's, as I said, it's not a civil war, because the United States is behind the, the various parties concerned. It supports covertly ISIS, it supports the Maliki government, and, and it supplies it with advanced weapon systems, which feeds contracts for Lockheed Martin, and they're even buying F-16 jet fighters. Um, and then, on, on the, and then it also supports the Kurdistan movement in northern uh, Iraq, and incidentally, Israel is a strong supporter of of Kurdistan. So that what we're now seeing is, first of all, the disintegration of the Iraqi state in in Baghdad and its government, uh, I would suggest that probably the United States is going, it's not necessarily committed to maintaining that government. Um, it, they've already implemented regime change in, in Iraq. They've got a, they have a regime which is obeying orders from, from, from Washington, but now that regime, uh, it, its, its days are counted, and then a new political configuration may emerge in, in the post-Maliki era. Professor Shrostadovsky, we're just about uh, out of time. I'm, I was wondering if there's maybe some uh, interesting articles to uh, the Center for Global Research that maybe you want our listeners to, to check out that uh, help enlighten us on the situation. Well, we, are, we, are, uh, we have published quite a number of articles on these recent developments and, and uh, uh, covering various facets uh, of what is actually going on. Uh, uh, there's also the issue of the oil industry. There's a, a very interesting article by Felicity Arbutnot on, uh, on uh, uh, the relationship between the Islamic State of Iraq and, uh, and uh, the oil industry, and in, in other words, uh, because they're occupying certain key areas. Um, and... Uh, 
I think that while there's a certain state of confusion, it's important to, I think, to understand the central proposition that ISIS is not an independent terrorist entity. It is an intelligence asset of the U.S. Uh, administration, uh, of U.S. intelligence. It has been set loose quite deliberately in a carefully timed uh, operation, and the objective is ultimately to create pa havoc and to create conditions for, for a change in the, in the whole political social structure of Iraq, which could lead to uh, uh, the formation of three separate states. Um, some of that is covered in our recent um, reports. Uh, um, we, we're publishing on a daily basis at Global Research quite a number of, of articles. The, the article by Felicity Arbutnot, the Iraq ISIS insurgency in the Anglo-American battle for oil, that was published uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, we're also looking into the whole notion of non-conventional warfare, okay, that, that uh, uh, a very incisive article by Phil, Phil Greaves uh, entitled American Imperialism and the Non-Conventional Warfare, non Warfare in Iraq, Premeditated Covert Operations and the ISIS Insurgency. Okay. Professor Michelle Chosodovsky is an award-winning author, professor of economics, emeritus at the University of Ottawa, and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. Uh, he is also the author of the recent article, The Engineered Destruction and Political Fragmentation of Iraq Towards the Creation of a U.S.-Sponsored Islamist Caliphate. Professor Chosodovsky, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, delighted to be on the program. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. On June 3rd, elections were held to determine the presidency of the state of Syria. According to the official results, incumbent Ba'ath Party leader Bashar al-Assad scored a landslide victory with 88.7% of the vote. His rivals, Hassan al-Nuri and Maher Hajar, received 4.3% and 3.2% respectively. Are these results tainted as a result of the civil war situation and suppression of the free vote from the governing side, as has been suggested by U.S. officials like John Kerry? What does the election mean for the future of U.S.-NATO policy in Syria and the surrounding region? Joining me right now is Mahdi Nazam Roya. He is a, um, a research associate with the Center for Research and Globalization. He was recently in Syria as an election observer. It's nice to have you here, Mahdi. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay. So uh, tell me a, a little bit about your, your trip to uh, Syria. You, you observed the elections. How did you, first of all, get to, uh, to be in that position as an ex election observer? Well, I was invited uh, through the uh, Syrian um, equivalent of the parliament, which is the Syrian People's uh, National Assembly of the Syrian Arab Republic, uh, I arrived in Syria via Lebanon. I had to drive from Beirut uh, 
on the Beirut-Damascus highway through Becca and um, go to Damascus from there. I was there a few days before the election. Uh, I was one of uh, several international observers. In total, I believe there was approximately 50 international observers that were in Damascus, uh, the majority of which were members of parliament or officials from other countries like the Russian Federation, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Brazil, Bolivia, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, uh, Uganda, the Philippines, and uh, Tajikistan. For, uh, these were just some of the countries uh, that sent international observers and members of parliament there. Uh, I would like to mention also that while I was in Lebanon, while I was in Beirut, uh, there were the election process, the electoral process had already begun. And uh, Lebanon is the country with the highest uh, ratio or proportion of Syrian refugees outside of Syria, uh, uh, followed by, I believe, Turkey or Jordan. Uh, in Lebanon, there's over 1 million refugees. About over 95% of them went to vote. Uh, the embassy didn't even have enough ballots for all of them. Some of them had to go back to Syria across the border to vote on election day because they, the embassy could not facilitate all of them. They even had to extend electoral hours. And I think there's a really good inference that we can make from the election, the voting in Lebanon. Uh, the Syrian refugees who voted were not forced, so no one can say that uh, everyone who voted in this election was forced or intimidated by the regime uh, in Damascus. Uh, those people all freely wanted to vote, and most of them, the vast majority of them, uh, displayed support for uh, Bashar al-Assad in the Ba'ath Party. So they had posters of him or, or T-shirts with his picture, and uh, they were singing chants about him. So we can see in Lebanon, uh, there's a litmus test here about the freeness uh, of these elections. And uh, everything that I saw in Lebanon or know about occurring in Lebanon dispels the... Uh, the um, the uh, accusations that this election was forced on the people and was unfair. Well, the rhetoric around uh, the Assad regime is that he's a dictator, he's a brutal dictator, and uh, that uh, it, it, I think it people pay, basically take it as a given that a, a, a dictatorial leader has ways of uh, uh, restricting uh, or, or coercing the population or, or otherwise fiddling around with election results to get the results that they want. And, and you're saying that, uh, you know, that there's no way that uh, those sorts of things could have happened? Uh, that, that I am saying that this election was, uh, fr from my observations, as someone who's worked for Elections Canada, as someone who's also uh, been an international observer uh, prior to this uh, and knows about the electoral process, uh, it seemed to be a relatively fair election. I saw technocratic uh, flaws and um, things that could be, uh, could be questioned, but they were very minor. Uh, it was very clear that uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, had popular support. Uh, every, all the observers I talked to for the areas that they were responsible and assigned to had the same views. Uh, we talked about the si similar flaws, 
but relatively speaking, the, the elections, the spirit of the elections was fair. Uh, there was scrutineers for the other two candidates, uh, and there was a popular uh, popular voting. The I believe about seventy four percent, over seventy percent of the uh, eligible voters. Uh, and what I mean by eligible voters is people who were 18 years, uh, at least 18 years old on the date of the elections and who did not have a criminal record uh, were uh, were eligible voters. About 70% of these people voted. And while I, I brought up the issue of people with criminal records or felons, uh, that was only – only around 100 and something odd people were disqualified from voting. But this is out of a population of approximately 24 million, and about 15 million were eligible voters. That means 15 million were uh, people who were over 18 years or 18 years of age on election day. Hmm. Now, I'm wondering, isn't it? I mean, there is a the country is in a state of civil war. I mean, we've got these insurgencies, and you've got. Uh, you know, you know, violent uh, reprisals. Um, I, I think the impression a lot of people have is that this would generate a, 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 situa- a chaotic situation. That, uh, wh- however um, virtuous uh, the regime or the government might be, that uh, there, there would, by necessity, be flaws in trying to compile and, and tally the results appropriately. Is there? Uh, were there no concerns in that regard? There were concerns, and these were questions that I and others brought up when we met with uh, people uh, in charge of the electoral process. By that, I mean the uh, judges and the members of the Syrian Arab Republic's Electoral Commission and the Constitutional uh, Court. Uh, These questions were brought up, and they, uh, they made the elections flexible. I mean, uh, in Lebanon, for example, the elections went past the mandated hours, uh, voting hours. And the reason they they did that is to try to uh, facilitate everyone to vote. In Syria, they said if there were problems from the insurgents, and the insurgents did threaten to kill, murder people who would vote, uh, they said that they would be flexible on issues like that. Being issued an ID, for example, was very simple at this time. So if somebody wanted to vote, they, they could get an ID relatively quick within that day, uh, if possible. Uh, they, they would speed things up. Uh, the other thing was because of the fighting uh, in the uh, in the Syrian Arab Republic, the entire country was treated as one single electoral precinct uh, because of uh, because of that. So someone from Aleppo could vote in Latakia, or someone in Homs could vote in Damascus. Uh, so they may, treated the entire country as one precinct, uh, electoral precinct, and that was to facilitate this. They they made a lot of cons- uh, concessions in, in those terms uh, to try to facilitate voting. Uh, the other thing was the elections were s- supposed to start at 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., but they were willing to extend hours. They were willing to, uh, to help uh, transport people if they needed to vote. Uh, and another phenomenon that I noticed that now that I'm talking about this is a lot of uh, Syrians would fly in from outside of the country from places like Kuwait, the United Kingdom, the United States of America, Italy to come vote inside Syria. 
And one of the reasons for that was because their embassies were not allowed. To, there was either no diplomatic relations or their embassies were not allowed to uh, to let the elections take place. So these people would rather come back to their country from Turkey or the United Arab Emirates or Kuwait to vote, to show their support. And I've actually met people, for example, in Tartus on the coast of the Mediterranean. I met uh, someone from Italy, a man who came to vote. Uh, I met uh, someone from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland who also came to vote. I met various people coming from uh, outside of the country to to vote. Mm. Could you talk more about uh, the threats to your personal security as, as an election observer? Um, were there some areas of the country that it was uh, um, you know, uh, more of a concern? Well... I mean, we were given uh, protection. We were afforded protection, of course. As and you the, felt safe. As inter- Well, feeling safe and being safe are two different things. Some people might have not felt safe while they were, and some people might have felt safe when they weren't. Uh, we were afforded protection. That means we were given uh, security uh, and bodyguards, essentially. We went in convoys. They were protected. Uh, I flew from Damascus, the capital, to the coasts. I, I flew to uh, Latakia, the governorate of Latakia. The gov- governorate's a province or a state. I flew into Latakia uh, with uh, Russian officials, North Korean officials, and uh, Pakistani observers, as well as one other Canadian, one American citizen. Uh, we flew to Latakia. They took the north of the coast, so they stayed in Latakia government. While I went to Tartus government from Latakia, and I went to, uh, I even went to a, a, a city where the recreation center was turned into a, a refugee camp. They they don't call them refugees; they call them internally displaced. But I went there to see them vote, and there was people there from Aleppo or from the far east of the country, some areas on the Iraq border. There was even Palestinian refugees being housed there, and um, they set up polls there. I think in all there was over 11,000 polls, 9,000 polling and 9,000 polling stations throughout the country, and uh, they took care of our security. Uh, other people went to other places, like uh, I know that a delegation of parliamentarians went to the government or province of Aleppo, uh, others were in the governorate or province of Damascus. Others were uh, went to the um, uh, Swaida. Uh, some went to Homs. Uh, I don't know if anybody went to Idlib. I don't remember that. Uh, but we were spread out, and uh, basically the whole country was uh, had election observers. The Latin Americans were in the south. Uh, I, I recall that. Okay. Were there no incidents uh, or, or, or any, any significant incidents of, of intimidation uh, of, uh, of voters uh, that you're familiar with? I am aware of uh, incidents of intimidation, but they were not from the government side. They were not from the uh, government of Bashar al-Assad. The intimidation was from the insurgent side. So they did threaten to kill people uh, or their families if they voted. Uh, there was actually uh, a depo- the areas that the insurgents controlled ha- are essentially being depopulated. People were trying to escape from them, and uh, people did leave them to come vote. Uh, I spoke to people who who were threatened, and their message was that 
we don't care. We're here right now, and this is the only way to save our country. We don't have uh, many people. I want to make this uh, categorically clear. Many Syrian citizens, uh, the people of Syrian in Syria's society, made it very clear that they saw this election as as a means of saving their country. They said that we're doing this to save our country, our ourselves and our families. So they they saw this vote as paramount to establishing security in their country. And that was one of the main reasons many people uh, voted. There was even people who did not like Bashar al-Assad who would vote, but they voted because they saw this as a means of saving their country, and they voted for him. So, uh, I mean, they saw this as a vote for Syrian unity and Syri- uh, Syrian stability and and restoring order in Syria. Um, and that's very important to note. In fact, this was more of a referendum in my eyes than it was an election. It was a referendum to uh, reconfirm uh, or restate the legitimacy of the Syrian uh, government and the Syrian president in the eyes of the Syrian people. And uh, I, I think that's what many people should focus on when they think of the election, presidential election that took place in Syria. Okay, so what you you talk about it being effectively a referendum? What was it? Um, could you identify exactly what it was about the the alternatives uh, that that may have caused concern for the populace? Well, when we speak about alternatives, there's two uh, types of alternatives. I sh- I'd like to uh, construct for, for for listeners. One alternative was the other presidential candidates. There were only two other presidential candidates. I believe 30 people, 30 to 40 people approximately, uh, applied to become presidential candidates. But like most other places in the world, there's a filtration system. I mean, in the United States, I believe if you have a criminal record or you're not born in the United States, you can't run for president. Uh, so, the, or in Argentina, if you're not a Roman Catholic, you can't run for president. So every system of governance, every democracy has some type of filter. In Syria, you needed, I believe, a certain amount of uh, members of the National Assembly, basically parliamentarians or deputies, uh, to sign a paper uh, of support. So only three candidates were able to get this. And the other thing that you needed... Uh, to be eligible to run for off the office of uh, president of the Syrian Arab Republic was to live in Syria for an X number of years for a specific time. And because of these uh, criteria, uh, not everybody was able to make it. Not everybody got other members of parliament or deputies to sign their papers. So the two uh, candidates that did was someone who's aligned to the, who's a communist essentially. And the other one was a neoliberal economist uh, I think that the communist candidate or the communi- uh, the socialist candidate um, who's part of a, uh, who was part of a coalition that includes the Sy- uh, the Syrian uh, social nationalist party uh, as well as the the socialist communists uh, I believe that he's been a long-standing uh, political alternative in Syria his his party has I've read that they've there's been some tensions within the party and they some people have uh, uh, delinked or disassociated but the other gentleman the economist I'm talking about uh, I look at him more as a token opponent uh, I think a lot of people there did too um, 
Now, in regards to the other type of alternatives, the, the other type of alternative were, were Amer- foreign proxies, uh, the insurgents and the Syrian National Coalition based in Istanbul and Qatar and, and Doha. Uh, these were the other alternatives, and these, these were looked at as traitors, uh, foreign puppets, vassals, uh, people who would uh, who would surrender to not only the United States and the Arab petrochikdoms of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, but also to Israel, or as they call it in Syria, the Zionist regime. Uh, they were looked at as basically these were the alternatives on a political level, as well as. On the ground, they're insur- the insurgents that would kill people, the anti-government forces who were torturing and murdering and raping and plundering, the same type of uh, uh, insurgents that we na- now see in, in uh, Iraq, uh, destroying the federal Re- Arab Republic of Iraq, uh, you know, in Mosul, killing uh, thousands of uh, uh, prisoners. So that was the other alternative. Uh, it was people who wanted to set up some type of emirate who didn't believe in democracy and who would essentially be pawns of uh, U.S. And, and Turkish and Saudi and Israeli and British interests. Mm. So is there anything – I mean, of course, the, the Western press and, and leaders are, are suggesting that, that this uh, – the, the elections were somehow tainted. Um, did you see anything else that – sort of suggests dirty tricks on the part of, of Western forces that have their own agenda for Syria? Well, I did see, uh, I mean, I was looking at what the media in places like uh, Britain or France or Germany or the United States or Canada was reporting, uh, like the Montreal Gazette or the National Post or the Globe and Mail or the Washington Post, or Fox News. I, I, I looked at what the British Broadcasting Corporation would say, and they were very disconnected from facts on the ground. In fact, some of them, like The Guardian, would say there was no international observers there. So they didn't know about reality. I saw in, in cases where they were talking about the refugees in Jordan, they were giving the numbers from Libya, uh, from Lebanon. You know, in Jordan, the refugees are just under one million, but they were giving the figure from Lebanon, so they didn't know their facts. Their, their, their the facts they they weren't correct about the facts, um, and they were basically br- brushing off and selling off the elections as fraud, automatically without knowing what was happening on the ground. They were saying that it was rigged, unfair, and interesting enough. Interesting enough, the United Kingdom's. Uh, Foreign Minister, or I should say Foreign Secretary, uh, William Hague, he said that the elections were illegitimate because they were taking place during a civil war. Uh, well, the irony is Mr. Hague recognized the elections in Ukraine, the presidential elections that took place in the same time frame, while they took place in exact similar conditions while there was fighting in the eastern portion of the country, while the Ukrainian military and the National Guard were involved uh, in in military operations in eastern Ukraine, in places like Donetsk. And um, the United States and Great Britain had no problems in recognizing these elections, but their standards are different for Syria. So, I mean, uh, I had to – I looked the other way and just – that uh, what William Hague and others had to say. I know that 
the Secretary of State, John Kerry for the United States, was also in Lebanon while I was in Syria. And he also made similar statements and, and basically uh, lamented against the Syrian government and against uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah and against Iran and against Russia. But uh, I, I think it's utter hypocrisy. And I think they're not reflecting or even trying to reflect any truth about what happened in Syria during the presidential elections. So is there anything else about the Syrian elections that you just observed that you think listeners need to reflect on? I think that the elections, maybe from a moral standpoint, they needed them for inner morality. But but I think that uh, they weren't necessary at all because uh, Bashar al-Assad was – it was very clear that the other candidates – couldn't win. I mean, throughout the entire country, uh, the, uh, people supported the man. He had popular support. And I went to more, I, I wasn't, uh, I went around Syria. So I saw I was in the countryside. And you asked me about security, for example. Well, I was in the south and I was close to the front. And I, I had to stop for, uh, for a time because the fighting was near me before I returned to the city of Damascus from Damascus countryside, you know. And, uh, I pretty much saw the country, and you could you saw that this there was support behind uh, Bashar al-Assad. So the president has popular support, and the elections I think were just to prove that there was legitimacy for the government. I think it, I don't know I don't think it was an election for in, an internal election. I think it was an election to, the, to demonstrate something to the outside world, and um, I also think that. Uh, well, it was my uh, educated guess that military operations would be ramped up uh, after the election. I think that uh, speaking to people in Syria, uh, they were holding back on some operations, not to instigate or or to poke the hornet's nest, uh, in so many words, uh, so they could the elections could go through as smoothly as possible. They were waiting for a successful election in Syria, and then after that, they were going to ramp up uh, military operations. You know, they knew already where some cells of uh, insurgents were. They left them alone, uh, so the elections could take place without with minimum violence and disruption. And then after that, they can ramp up. Uh, uh, military operations against these anti-government forces. Uh, the other thing that I'd like to mention about the presidential elections in the Syrian Arab Republic is that um, I think that uh, it makes the Geneva, I think it makes uh, the process in Geneva obsolete. I, I from the very beginning, uh, was against the Geneva conference. I thought it was a scam. Uh, it was basically the Syrian government negotiating with the paymasters and overlords of these uh, insurgents, uh, basically the United States and its and its proxies and allies. And I think now this this is the end for the, the that consensus in Geneva, which was at the very beginning nefarious and something the United States wanted to use as a tool against Syria, as well as its regional and international allies. And I think this is this has put the nails in the in the coffin for, for that entire Geneva process that was that was bankrupt from the very beginning. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, if. Uh I mean, we've seen that the, uh, I mean, all pretense aside, I mean, the, the Western countries, NATO, have uh, had their own plans for Syria and the geo 
political chessboard, uh, how, how far away are they from their ultimate goal, or how do they alter their strategy at this point? Well, I think they've lost. Uh, very frankly, I think they lost. I, I, I saw this as a downward spiral for them. Um, but that doesn't mean they're going to stop uh, in their endeavors. The endeavors, they have not stopped. They're going to re-strategize, and that's what they've been doing for the last decade. They've been, they've, uh, failure after failure, they've re-strategized. I mean, in 2006, they attacked Lebanon, but Syria was the main target. Uh, after they lost in Lebanon and they were defeated by Hezbollah and the Lebanese resistance, the Israelis I'm talking about, but this was an operation that involved the U.S., U.S. planning, U.S. strategists, as well as NATO, uh, after they lost, what did they do? They went to a project. Uh, they started a policy. It's an old policy, actually. They used it in Afghanistan. But Seymour Hersh, for example, calls it the redirection, mm. sectarian fighting. You know, using Salafists against uh, against their enemies. And you see in Lebanon what happens in uh, after two thousand and six. Well, they brought groups like Fatah al-Islam into the Palestinian camps in Tripoli. And that backfired on them. So instead of attacking Hezbollah, Fatah al-Islam ended up fighting the Lebanese state, fighting against the Lebanese army in the Palestinian camps. And uh, those characters from Fatah al-Islam actually ended up fighting in the insurgency. Uh, so gr- um, groups that are tied to the, to this project ended up backfiring uh, and attacking the people in Lebanon that wanted to attack Hezbollah. Um, there's people like Ahmed Al-Asir, who was in uh, Saida or Sidon in central Lebanon, towards the south, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, these type of characters have, have – uh, they, they've proven to be incapable. That was Mahdi Nazem Roya. He's a research associate with the Center for Research on Globalization and was recently in Syria as an election observer. That concludes our show. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across the country. The show can be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm and can be downloaded from the website globalresearch.ca. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's program, feel free to send your feedback to globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Join us again next week.